Welcome to Scary Savannah and Beyond. This is episode number 13. Lucky 13. It is Lucky 13. I am your host, Brett. And with me, as always, is the inimitable and wonderful... Define that. I I can't. I'm hoping it's a good word and (laughs) that it's not a bad word. It's a bad word. I want to apologize in advance to my beautiful (laughs) wife. I was trying to use fancy words every time. I I can't. You have the mouse. Oh, well, that won't work then. So we are back from Vegas, and we wanted to tell you a little bit about it before we started the show. Yeah, it was fun. We lost a lot of money, <laughs> but uh, that's okay. Please don't ask how much money. <laughs> we won some. You've ever but... seen Vegas Vacation? With oh, Chevy no. <laughs> it wasn't quite that bad. And they talk about how much you lost. It doesn't put you in the ballpark, but no, it sort of felt like it. Yeah, though. that's what it kind of felt didn't like. It? it did. It turns out I'm not as good at craps as I thought I was. <laughs> After all the research you put into playing craps, I put in and a lot of research into it. And Even it, bought a um, a game to go on our kitchen table to practice. Yeah, and the box and everything. Well, and, it turns out I think I didn't do a very good job, and also it's dependent upon luck, and I seem to have none of that. Well, I seem to have some, according to Penn and Teller. Yes, and that's the coolest thing. Part of what we did, and probably the only successful thing we did, which still ended up costing us a lot of money, was we went to see Penn and Teller at the Rio Casino in Las Vegas, right? Yeah, they put on a great show. They did. It was very fascinating to see the magic happen, but I sort of knew when we went in there and sat down, uh, Crystal was wearing her bright green leather jacket like she does with her bright blonde hair and her bright pretty face. (laughs) And we're sitting there and I'm looking up the stage and I see Penn up there with a piano player. And Penn, turns out, is an upright bass player. And they were playing jazz, which I thought was pretty cool. The whole time, everybody's sort of scoping her out. And I'm like, that's a little weird. You know, yeah, there was a guy sitting there with a some sort of iPad or something. And he was taking notes and kept looking over our direction. So Yeah, he reminded me of some of the roadies. Well, not roadies, but like sound engineers that we've had at some of my band's shows. Yeah, y'all ain't got no roadies. Oh, we do have roadies. It's like whenever we have our drummer's dad there, sometimes he carries some stuff. Joe. Yeah, and I've made Crystal be a roadie a few times, but I don't think she wants to carry my bass dress. So what happened was, is they were trying to prove how only a handful of people were even lucky in Vegas, and Vegas sort of picks who they are, I guess. I don't know. But they played a game, and there was like 400-something people in this auditorium, right? Yeah. And what they did was, they started off with everyone standing up. They said, we're going to show you how only one person is typically going to be lucky. So they would take a coin, and they brought up an audience member, and they would flip the coin, and everybody in the audience was to put hands up for heads or hands down for tails. And yeah, if he asked a series of questions, so yeah. you just picked heads or tails on and whether or not you agreed with that question or it fit you. And if you lost on that toss, you had to sit down. So they're basically eliminating about half of the audience on each flip. And it got down near the end and I was out pretty, <laughs> pretty <quick>. early, <laughs> probably three or four flips in because, you know, you always call heads on a coin flip. I learned that from football. Yeah. And that's what I was going to do. But then he like made it specific. He's like, if your birthday is an odd number, you have to pick tails or whatever. So I'm like, oh man. Yeah. I got to pick tails. So it came down to Crystal and uh, two or three other people and they whittled them down and whittled them down. And yeah, like halfway through, I started getting suspicious because I'm like, I can't win a coin toss that many times. Nobody can. Nobody can. <laughs> unless it's rigged. Yeah. So what he did was he got up on stage and he had this large whiteboard and on it, he would cross off with Roman numerals. How many times you were winning. Yeah, how many times you won a coin flip. So it was like six or seven. I think it got to nine at the end. Flips total. I think it was nine. And came down to just Crystal and this other guy. And that guy lost. So Crystal ended up being (laughs) the last one there. And of course, everybody was cheering for her. And actually, I have a clip that I want to play for you, which I was recording while this went on. And you'll see why she got her new nickname, which I'll tell you after the clip. You two something different. And you, whatever the hell you want. Okay? <laughs> hands up your heads, hands up your heads. And people sitting down, you decide who you're rooting for, okay? Decide who you're rooting for. Everybody set? Get something in your mind. You're rooting for everybody set? Everybody set? Oh, come on. Eight in a row, and now we've got... No longer whatever the hell you want. Because now you 
are going up against Aquaman. <laughs> and people can decide who they want there. Okay? When you do that, how many of you decide first? You decide first. What do you want? Hands up for heads, hands up for heads. We're not doing hands, hands up for heads. Decide who you want. Everyone set? If we get to the head, everyone set? <laughs> So as you heard from the clip, Crystal's new nickname and Twitter handle is Aqua Blonde. I guess he thought that jacket color is aqua, but it's more like... It's more green. <laughs> well, I think some people see aqua as more of a shade of green. Might have been the stage lighting. But I don't think green blonde would have been as catchy as green aqua blonde. blonde. <laughs> Let's go green blonde. So aqua blonde so was... So she won and she was called up to the stage, right? Yes, which is one of the things I don't like to do is stand up in front of 400 people. Yeah, so she goes up to the stage, turns around. He says, do a regal wave. And she did. And while she did that, they took that poster board and flipped it over. And on the other side of the poster board was a character of her the size of the poster board. Yeah, it was huge. And it had like my earrings and my headband and my jacket and everything. And um, they signed it. Yeah, both of them signed it, actually. And that's that's really cool. So we said, you have to bring that home with us from Vegas. <laughs> of and course. Tabby Island, right outside of Savannah, is about, what, 2,000 miles yeah. away from Vegas? Pretty far. So we had to ship it by FedEx. And I told Crystal, it's going to be expensive. And she's like, oh, I'll probably be 150 I said, no, it'll be 250 It was we more than that. We were both wrong. It was a little more than that. It was $281. $291. Yeah, well, you insisted we ship it home. I was, I was going to let them throw it away. I, I was, was like, yeah, just get rid of this. That. It's It's got their signatures on it. And it was really cool. So we'll put some pictures up of that so you can see it. And I'm going to find a way to hang it in my office. Yeah, it arrived today and I have no idea what to do with it. It's in this giant box and we have like one wall in the house that it might fit on, but I already have something there that I like. So I don't know what we're going to do with it. It doesn't matter. I'll probably break whatever it is anyway, and then there'll be room for it. <laughs> so you can find us online if you go to www.scarysavannahandbeyond.com or www.scarysavannah.net. You can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and LinkedIn. Once again, for some reason, if you look for the user at Scary Savannah, you can also find a YouTube page where we put up some videos from Vegas and also our on-site investigations we'll be doing and our podcast episodes are there as well. If you go to our actual website, you can link to the YouTube page from there. It's got a link. We don't have a title for it yet. Yeah, we need followers, so subscribe. So please go subscribe to our YouTube page because once I have 100, I can name it and then I can start telling you where to go find it rather than begging <laughs> it's you. It's easy. You just push one button. It's a thumbs up. Yeah, to go to our webpage. You can also call us at 912-406-2899. That number is 912-406-2899. You can even text us there too, apparently. I've texted Oh, we can get it. text messages? We can get text too. Cool. You can call, leave us a voicemail if you'd like to have something played on the show, if you have any questions, or if you want to just, you know, hate a coffee and Layla. say hey to the dog. So this week, we're going to be talking about a true crime story, apparently, right? We are, and most true crime fans are familiar with the case or cases of Robert Durst. So he actually just died a couple of weeks ago, and his name's been in the media again lately because of that. 
It's an intriguing case spanning several decades and even has some ties to Vegas, which we'll get into later. Convenient but, how that works, right? I know. First, we're going to play a short clip. So that was a sound clip from an HBO documentary called The Jinx. Sounds like a hotel and ca- casino in Vegas. <laughs> it does. It sounds like what my luck was like at every hotel and casino in Vegas. Robert Durst is giving an interview about his life, and when he's confronted with a piece of evidence that he's not ready for, he gets nervous and says he needs to take a break. While he's in the bathroom, he forgets to remove his microphone. Oh, just like Leslie Nielsen on the Naked Gun? <laughs> yes. I hope it wasn't quite as graphic it as was, that. It was, but they edited oh. it out. They did. <laughs> I mean, you can hear the unedited version, well, but I, I don't, don't recommend it. I particularly think I'm going to be looking for that. Well, he starts rambling to himself and essentially confesses to all the crimes he's been accused of all, all through the years. How'd that work out for him? Uh, fine for a little while. Okay. He's playing hardball then, huh? The documentary is from 2015, but like I said, his crimes go all the way back to the 1980s. So we need to start from the beginning. Cue the Miami Vice music. (laughs) We can't do that for copyright reasons, but just imagine it in your head. So who is Robert Durst? Have you ever heard of him? I haven't. He sounds like the lead singer from Limp Bizkit, though. Mm, He wasn't that cool. Okay. He was born April 12th, 1943. That's Uh a familiar date. That date has popped up on the last episode too, didn't it? It did. It's like a cursed day or something. (laughs) It's the day I married you. Exactly. Like I'm saying, it's a cursed day. Not for (laughs) for me, but for you. (laughs) So he was the son of real estate magnate Seymour Durst and his wife, Bernice. Bernice. That's another name that popped up before, isn't it? Wasn't there a Bernice? I think there has been a Bernice somewhere. Oh my goodness, this is like deja vu. These people are like rich, rich, like billionaire rich. Not Ah. millionaire, like billionaire. So they could afford a house on Tybee then. Oh yeah, (laughs) they could own the whole island. They could get a long-term rental here. So you can imagine he grew up with privilege, Mm -hmm. but his mother was troubled and she committed suicide when Robert was seven. Well, that's sad. She jumped off the roof of their house. Oh no. That's something that would happen in Savannah. That's come up before. <laughs> it has. Everything you're saying has been in a previous episode. I know. It's like I'm just uh, like recycling it. Oh, no. It's going to be like Sam Beckett. He's going to jump into one of us. He's going to be like, we can't do this episode. I've got to change the past for the future. So Robert claims that he was there and witnessed it. And he was standing in the dining room looking out the window. But his brother denies that and says that he wasn't there, that they were both sleeping at a relative's that night. Why would he claim such a thing? He's a compulsive liar, it seems like. Well, we know. There are a lot of people that know compulsive liars. Yeah. So, as children, Robert and his brother Douglas underwent counseling for sibling rivalry after the death of their mother. And in 1953, a psychiatrist's report on 10-year-old Robert mentioned personality decomposition and possibly even schizophrenia. That sounds pretty extreme. If you watch any of his interviews, he does seem like there's definitely something off about him. He twitches, he blinks a lot, he, he's just got this weird mannerism about him. Okay, so he wasn't all there. But well, he, he was, but he wasn't. Like, I don't think he had control over some things. I don't know. At least he was filthy rich. So yeah, it and it doesn't seem like he got flaws. treatment for it either, for whatever yeah. he had going on. Like, he actually claims that he was high on meth the whole time they recorded the jinx. <laughs> <laughs> it was all a lie. I didn't do any I, of it. It was the, it was the crystal was that the took myth. me there. So as a child, he was described by classmates as a loner. And after he graduated high school, he attended UCLA. And that's where he he must have been pretty smart then. Well, or that or you got money. He didn't stay there long. Oh, well, I guess people of privilege can get into these big name schools a little easier. He didn't graduate. Although he always would claim that he had a degree from UCLA. Another one of his lies. Okay. This is where he met Susan Berman. They became the best of friends. And this is where our Vegas tie comes in. Because Susan Berman was actually the daughter of gangster David, or Davy the Jew, Berman, who, Ooh. along with Ben Bugsy Siegel, ran the Flamingo Hotel back in the 1940s. Hey, they took a lot of my money back in the they, last week. <laughs> they did. They no longer own it, though. It, now it's a Hilton property. I imagine they're probably dead at Well, this I know, point, but their too. families don't own it. It's a Hilton property now since the 1970s. The Flamingo? Yep. I thought the Flamingo was owned by Caesars. Mm, well, Caesars must be owned by Hilton. Maybe Hilton owns everything. I think Hilton owns it all, except it's for the Trump Illuminati. Tower. <laughs> except for Trump Tower, maybe. So this is where we're going to take a sidebar and talk about Susan Berman, who, spoiler alert, would later become a victim of Robert Durst. Well, that's a big spoiler. It is. So let's start with Susan's father, David, or Davy Berman. Davy. He was raised in an impoverished Jewish family, and from a young age, he decided he was going to make money no matter what. 
He started a gang of street thugs at age 13. Street thugs? Yeah, they would like um, hustle and they would go up to these like cart vendors and threaten them and they'd be like, you need our protection, huh. so you got to pay us. Or it's a protection racket. And they're like, protection from what? And they're like, well, you don't want to find out. So well, they would give them their money. it turns out that if you give me the money, you won't need to know. <laughs> yeah, so it worked and he, uh, he learned to make money at a young age. Later, he got into the mob in New York and Minneapolis where they would kidnap wealthy bootleggers and hold them for ransom, among other nefarious activities. Ooh, they were up into that nefarious action. Yeah, it was quite profitable. Seems like it. He was good at his job, but even the best gangsters get caught from time to time, as you know. He ended up getting Ain't arrested. Got me yet. <laughs> he ended up being arrested for one of these kidnappings and spent some time in Sing Sing prison. Hey, I heard about that from Bugs Bunny. Yeah, it's not a place you want to go. Yup, in Sing Sing. After his release, the powers that be decided to send him, along with other notorious gangsters, such as Ben Bugsy Siegel, to Las Vegas. There was a lot of heat on the mob in Minneapolis and New York and L.A. at the time, so they decided to establish an operation in Las Vegas where gambling was legal. That is a it still is. genius plan, apparently, <laughs> based on what it looks like now. Yeah, so let's go to Vegas in the 1940s. I would love to. David Berman and his wife, Gladys, who was a dancer, moved there with their young daughter, Susan. Is this dancer in quotation marks? No, she was a real dancer, like oh, like professional them, dancer. Is it like the showgirls, like the costumes yeah. we saw? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like ballets. her mother sewed all her costumes and she was quite popular at the time. Yeah, those costumes they had in ballets and those, well, I only remember seeing them in ballets. Well, they're a little bit more classy than that. Those were quite Back risque. then, yeah, they were classier. Yeah, but she was a quite a bit younger, I think 16 years younger than him, but... But uh, she fell in love with him, and they seemed to have a good marriage overall. And so they moved with their daughter, Susan. You remember Susan? Well, money helps with all that. Yeah, sometimes. She actually went on to become a journalist and author. Susan did. Okay. She wrote a book about growing up with her gangster father in early Vegas. She even mentioned Robert Durst and her acknowledgments on the book. Yeah. yeah. The guy that would end up killing her years later. Oh. So that's weird. This is everything's about deja vu and callbacks on this episode, <laughs> it seems. So Vegas at that time was not what it is today. The Hotel Cortez was there and the Riviera, but the strip that we all know and love today was just an open desert. Yeah, we went to the Cortez. Mm -hmm. Susan recalled riding horses down what today is Las Vegas Boulevard. Could you imagine doing that these days? That would be even more awesome (laughs) now than it probably was then. Yes. Wouldn't be the weirdest thing you'd see on the strip. No, it definitely wouldn't. Or especially in downtown Vegas. Yeah. So Davey Berman and Bugsy Siegel were tasked with creating the first luxury resort in Vegas, the Flamingo Hotel. It was going to be like nothing anyone had ever seen, a haven for the stars and high rollers. The project was supposed to cost $1 million, but when construction was nearing its end, the total cost was already over $6 million. Which in today's money is approximately $56,000.20. No, it's closer to $84 million, I think. Well, they so just that's carried quite the quite a bit of money. That is uh, quite over budget. Yeah, so needless to say, the bosses weren't happy about this exorbitant cost. And it turns out Bugsy was the one likely skimming money, which we all know is never a good idea. Especially when it involves the mafia. Exactly. Bugsy was quite a flamboyant character. He had movie star good looks and loved to hang around the rich and famous. He was sort of the mob ambassador to the stars. I thought that was what uh, Frank Sinatra was. He wasn't a gangster. I thought he was. Are you telling me TV shows <laughs> lied to me? I don't think he was a gangster. He was a singer. Okay. He would extort actors and studios, often borrowing large sums of money and never paying them back. Because what are they going to do? Ask him for the money? You going to go up to Bugsy Siegel and ask him for $100,000 you lent him? No. No, he'd often just like act like he didn't even borrow it. He'd be like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And they couldn't say no when he asked for it, I bet. Right, because it said that he got his name Bugsy because he was crazy as a bed bug. I didn't know bed bugs were crazy. Apparently they're crazy. He hated the name Bugsy and no one ever dared call him that to his face unless they wanted to face his wrath. He wanted to be called Ben or Mr. Siegel. Mr. Siegel. But everyone would call him Bugsy behind his back, even the newspapers and everything. Oh, yeah. Probably just to tick him off. So, like Davey Berman, he grew up poor and established his own gang when he was a young teen. So, you know these guys were street smart. Before coming to Las Vegas, he was a member of the infamous Murder Incorporated, which was responsible for multiple high-profile hits. I bet that reputation preceded him. Probably another reason why no one would call him Bugsy. Definitely. So, both Berman and Siegel were stone-cold killers. But unlike Berman, who was calm and collected, Bugsy was hot-headed and brazen. 
Like I said, he had the audacity to steal from the mob, which is just something you don't do. You got to be really brave <laughs> or stupid or both to do something like that, I would think. I guess he just thought he was too important. Maybe he just thought that they needed him. Yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. But the bosses held a meeting in Cuba in 1947 and decided Bugsy had to go. And by go, you know what I mean. He's got to go sleep with the fishes out in the <laughs> desert. And Bugsy, of course, had a mistress, as most good gangsters do. This one's name was Virginia Hill, and she was a pretty well-known actress at the time. She was a trusted drug mule for the mob. It's rumored that Siegel named the hotel in the Flamingo after Virginia. That was his nickname for her because she had red hair and long legs. Red hair and long legs. Just yeah. like a flamingo. <laughs> I know. I don't think that's a very endearing uh, nickname. Hey, look here, baby. You <laughs> remind flamingo. me of a big bird. <laughs> you remind me of a flamingo. You see all that poop on the floor over there <laughs> that these flamingos do? No. Everything about that screams you, baby. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's true. Anyway, one night he was hanging out on her couch, as he usually did. She was conveniently away in Europe at the time. Convenient. He was sitting there reading the paper as he did most nights when a sniper fired nine shots from a rose-covered pergola in the backyard, killing Bugsy instantly, even blowing his eye 10 feet across the room. Man, what kind of loser sniper needs to shoot nine times? Come on. I can he wanted get one, to make sure. I can get one-shot headshots on Call of Duty from like 500 yards away, and this dude has to take nine shots. So what is it with eyes in our episodes lately? I'm telling this you, is everything, everything is a callback. That's a callback. Remember last a week, callback. it was the Pappen sisters tossing eyeballs everywhere, and now we got eyes flying across the room. Ten feet across the room. Weird. If you start talking about Le Mans, I swear I'm turning this off. <laughs> no, we're not going to France. So anyway, even though his murder remains unsolved to this day, it's said that at oh, the I'm exact sure time... Oh, I'm sure they know what oh, happened. Yeah. At the exact time of his murder... Davy Berman, along with fellow gangsters Mo Sedway and Gus Greenbaum, walked into the Flamingo and announced that they were now in charge. <laughs> so has, I think has his eyeballs <laughs> flying across the room. Hey, you guys, it turns out we own this joint now. <laughs> so only six people attended Siegel's funeral. I guess they knew to stay away from that. I don't know that man. Yeah, no one wanted to have any association with him. I have no that. ties with him. Yeah. Now that Berman was running the Flamingo, it went on to be a highly profitable establishment nice susan grew up there surrounded by gangsters famous performers such as jimmy durante and k-star ah k-star i love k-star yeah um the whole time she knew nothing of what her father was really up to she spent her afternoons doing homework in the counting room where they counted all the money okay and played gin rummy every night with her father's friends <laughs> his, <laughs> his well-dressed yeah friends yeah she's like they were always through, in suits they and came smoking in through cigars. the kitchen and they basically lived there. Like, they were always there. Yeah. Because they had to be his bodyguards and stuff. So, they were actually some of the most notorious gangsters, and she had no idea. She I wonder said, what the Flamingo looked like back then. I'm sure it looks nothing like it does now. There's pictures. It was really pretty. Yeah, now it's basically... And this is the disappointment of Vegas. I mean, I see all these different casinos, and I love gambling. I probably have a problem. But you walk into any given casino, and they're all themed differently. Some of them more elaborate than others. But all of them have the same games in there. It doesn't matter which one you're in. You could close your eyes, be blindfolded, take it into a casino, and you will have no idea where you are, except one or two of them have a pretty cool aesthetic. Like, was it the Cromwell that looked just like it should be a gangster place? Yeah. Where it's like right beside the Flamingo, and yeah. it's got all that red velvet, not velvet, but red vinyl on the walls The Cosmo and also has its own look. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, Caesars is yeah, the one that's really got its own aesthetic. So growing up, Susan met royalty, stars, had fancy clothes, the best foods, and boarding schools. And she was quite shocked later on when she read the FBI reports that detailed all of her father's crimes. Oh, turns out, what did she think her dad did? She had no idea. Like yeah. She just assumed he ran the hotel, but she didn't know that anything illegal was well, going on. She was little. he did technically run the hotel, <laughs> yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah, but I mean, she was a little girl. She He died when she was young, so okay. we'll see. We'll see. Anyways, her idyllic life came to a sudden end when her father died on the operating table following a surgery on Father's Day of 1957. Not how your typical gangster died, but that's what happened to him. Well, they didn't get him for tax evasion. So. No, he didn't go back to jail. Unlike Bugsy Siegel, Davy Berman was highly regarded by the mob and important people, and hundreds showed up to his funeral. Okay. At the time, Susan was 12 years old. All right. Susan's mother, who had suffered from depression, died within a year of Davy's death from a barbiturate overdose. Oh, no. We're not sure if it was suicide or if it was a mob hit because she refused to give up his share of the Las Vegas casinos. Well, that might do it. Yeah. 
Susan was sent to live with her father's brother, Chicky Berman, who was also a gangster. <laughs> this is just getting better and better. <laughs> well, Chicky, I think he got that nickname because he liked to play with the chickens when they were little. Uh-huh. All, his name was Charles, but they always like called the him Chicky. Like the Birdman at Alcatraz. Yeah. <laughs> so he was quite a character, too. Uh, Susan loved him dearly, and he treated her well. She spent time at fancy boarding schools where celebrities' children went. The mob eventually paid her $4.3 million as her inheritance from her father. Well, they must have liked her, too, then. Yeah, I guess they felt she was entitled to it since they respected her father. Well, I know they do have some sort of code Code, of ethics and stuff. She grew up and attended UCLA, where I mentioned earlier she met Robert Durst. Like I said, they became great friends at one point, and she acknowledged him in her memoir, Easy Street, which I highly recommend. If you can find it. Well, it's a beautiful story, and I found it. It was published in 1981, and it's out of print, but if you go to archive.org, you can find it. It's a really cool website. It has a lot of old books. So you can find it there and you can read it there for free. Or you can pay $500 on Amazon, but I yeah. would not recommend that. Well, we, <laughs> when we were in Vegas, we knew, well, Crystal knew what she's going to do this episode about. On these true crime ones, I, I have as little info as possible. So she wanted to do an audio book of this thing to listen to it on the ridiculously long plane ride from Miami to Las Vegas. I would have slept through it anyway. Oh, yeah. So lucky you. She falls asleep. <laughs> now, plane do. ride for us is about five hours, it feels like. and. Every time I'm in that plane, there's always something driving me crazy. So anyway, now that you know a little bit about Susan and her background, let's get back to her friend, Robert Durst. Robert married a medical student named Kathleen McCormick in 1973. Remember, he's in L.A. at the time, going to UCLA? Yes. Well, he moves back to New York to work for his father in their real estate business, but he doesn't like it. He doesn't do very well. He wants to get out of there. Yeah. So he's not happy there. And his wife is not happy with him, and she claims he's abusive, and she wants a divorce, and reportedly she was asking him for $250,000 as a settlement. You wouldn't think that's a lot of money. I was about to say, I thought you said they were billionaires. Yeah, billions. Yeah, billions, but he didn't like that. I think he's the kind of guy that doesn't want to lose anything. I know people like that. Yeah, it was like, (laughs) you know, people like that. They don't want to lose. It could have been $250, and he'd be like, no. I'm telling you what, my wife loves me dearly, but she would cut my throat before she let me beat her in a board game. <laughs> that is not true. It is if true. If you deserve to win, you can win. It is true. You but would do me. it. Our son, <laughs> both our sons would do it. It's, you're cold hearted when it comes down to board <laughs> games. Okay. So you would think, since like we said, they had billions, 250000 is not very much, right? Pocket change, baby. I got it right here. He claimed that she was faking the abuse in order to get more money out of him. So on January 31st, 1982, he claims that he put his wife on a commuter train to New York City at Katana Station. Then he had a drink with a neighbor and spoke with his wife at their Manhattan apartment by telephone later that evening. But he later admitted that he just went home and went to bed. Ah, well, you know, it's basically the same thing, right? He said, and I quote, that's what I told police. I was hoping that would just make everything go away. Because <laughs> I've seen friends. Apparently, files. it, it did. Out, it did for a long time. Well, I guess if you got billions of dollars, because this might. is 1982, and Susan Berman reportedly gave him an alibi, and some speculate she called into Kathleen's medical school, pretending to be her, saying that she was sick and would be out for a week. That's never been proven. However, someone did call the school I've got for a Kathleen. Bad case of being dead. <laughs> At so, least I guess that's where this is going. We don't know if it was Berman. It could have been. We'll likely never know. But someone did make that call. Although police were suspicious of Durst having something to do with his wife's disappearance, they still have never found her body to this day. Oh, maybe she's not murdered. Maybe she just skipped town, changed her name, and now lives in Paraguay. Yeah, not likely. So nothing really happened with this case until 1999. So this is 17 years later after she's disappeared. Yeah. Police decide to start looking into the case again. Susan calls Robert and tells him that LA detectives have contacted her and want to interview her. And in the meantime, he's been sending her money. He sent her like $50,000. Total or just like at a time? It was in two payments. Okay. Over the course of a few months. All right. And so maybe he's trying to keep her quiet. Yeah. Not long after she made this phone call to Robert telling him about the meeting she's going to have with detectives. It's December 24th, 2000. Susan Berman is shot to death execution style in her Beverly Hills home. That sounds very mafioso. Execution style. (laughs) Well, maybe he did that because of that. Yeah. The back door was open, and one of her dogs was running loose in the neighborhood. A few days later, a letter arrived at the police department. It shows Susan Berman's address and contains the word cadaver. 
it was postmarked December 23rd, the day before Susan's murder. Robert was said to prefer dogs to humans, so he may have sent the letter to alert police so the dogs wouldn't be left alone. Also, if the back door was open and her back was turned, it's likely she knew the killer. Yeah. And the dogs didn't attack the killer, and since Robert knew the dogs, that makes sense. I know from watching forensic files that 80% of the people that are most likely to kill you are friends and family. (laughs) Usually, yes. So we'll come back to the significance of that letter later. Robert tries to distance himself from the upcoming investigation into his wife Kathleen's disappearance, so he heads down to Galveston, Texas to lay low, even dressing as a mute woman. (laughs) (laughs) If you've seen this guy, he would not make a pretty woman. I have not. So I'd like to see this. Yeah, he's like, I'm a mute woman. I I can't (laughs) speak. Well, I can't talk, so. (laughs) But I'm lying about that, so. But instead of laying low, he, do you know what he did? He opened a casino. No. He murders and dismembers his elderly neighbor, Morris Black. Well, that was going to be my third guess. (laughs) Yeah. Morris's body parts are found floating in the Galveston Bay. And on October 9th, 2001, Durst was arrested, but he was released on a $250,000 bail. Oh, he'll pay the bail. Yeah. Like, really? It should have been higher. He wouldn't even give his wife that much. If he just paid his wife, then maybe he wouldn't have had to kill her. So he, missed his court he <laughs> <laughs> so he missed his court hearing on October 16th and a warrant was issued for his arrest on the charge of bail jumping. And on November 30th, he was caught inside a Wegmans supermarket in Pennsylvania after trying to shoplift Band-Aids, a newspaper, and a chicken salad sandwich. He was hungry, I guess. I guess. Well, that's a weird amount of things to I steal. I know, like he wanted to get caught. Be like because... he'd go in there and be like, wow, I'm going to get this flashlight <laughs> and I'm going to get myself this little bag of grapes. And what do you know? A big old bottle of bleach. <laughs> well, the police, uh, when they searched him, he had $500 cash in his pocket. So he couldn't have afforded any of those And $37,000 in cash in his rental car, two guns, marijuana, and Morris Black's driver's license. So Why? I think that's a pretty done deal, Why right? would he have the dude's ID? Exactly. Is it like a trophy or something? I don't know. This guy. Was he a, was he a serial killer? We'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. It's well, rumored. I mean, I guess it's he rumored. technically might already be because how many people this was is, he killed? This is the third one. Who that knows they how know many people of. he exactly. killed in this little gang he had, you said. He didn't have a gang? Oh, wait. No, that was his dad. No, that was <laughs> no, Susan's that dad. that was Susan's dad. Susan's dad. <laughs> I just got all caught up in gangsters. I'm <laughs> no, sorry. No. So clearly he could afford it, but his reasoning was he was a terrible at being on the run. He hated it. He just wanted to get caught. So he's like, I'm going to steal these Band-Aids. That'll do it. That'll, Security get me. do it. During his trial in 2003 for the first degree premeditated murder of Morris Black, Durst claimed that Black, a cranky and confrontational loner, grabbed his 22 caliber target pistol from its hiding place and threatened him. During the struggle... That sounds like reason to dismember a person. <laughs> during the struggle for the pistol, it discharged and shot Black in the face. Oh, his arms <laughs> and legs just fell off. <laughs> so during cross-examination, Durst admitted to using a herring knife two saws, and an axe to dismember Black's body before bagging and dumping it and and putting it in the Galveston Bay. Okay, so he might have been related to these Pappen sisters. (laughs) I don't know. Black's head was never recovered, so prosecutors were unable to present sufficient forensic evidence to dispute Durst's account of the struggle. Could they do that now, though? I mean, I I don't know what happens, but the same evidence that he had then... Well, they, they never found his head now? still, so they can't tell if he was shot in the head. And he's saying that it was self-defense and it accidentally shot him in the head. And well, they how never they found explain the head. all the body parts being Well, he said that he dismembered it because of all the stuff that was going on. He, he felt like no one would believe him, so he panicked and dismembered the body to get rid of it so he wouldn't okay. get in trouble. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's reasonable, right? Yeah. Like most of us Very level-headed that. and forward-thinking of him. This is a surprise, though. He was acquitted. No, it's yes. not a surprise. <laughs> it should be noted he spent over $2 million on his defense team. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, Johnny Cochran. This is the third Johnny time Cochran the police thing. are unable to prove Robert Durst guilty of any murder. So, he does end up spending three years in jail, though, for the dismemberment. So, they did at least well, get him I for mean, that. I mean, a little slap on the wrist. Yeah. I mean, come on. So, he's released in July of 2005. And he's not the kind of person, though, that will just go quietly and let things be. He seems to like that cat and mouse game that he plays with the police. Sort of like, what was it, BTK? Yeah, yeah. Like, he wants attention. Yeah, he wants attention. So instead of just keeping his mouth shut, living out the rest of his life with all his money, what's he do? Open a casino. No. He contacts a film crew. I'll be right at some point. He contacts a film crew to make a documentary about his life. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, he saw this movie by director Andrew Jarecki. It was called All Good Things, and it was about Robert Durst's life. And reportedly, he liked it. So there was already a movie about his life. Yeah, there's been a lot of things. he wanted to make another movie about well, his Well, no, he wanted life. to do a documentary. He wanted everything out there. Oh, like, he wanted them to see what the real story yeah, was. Yeah, the real story. Like, Sounds like that was probably not in his best interest. So the movie starred Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst, and Robert is said to have loved the movie so much, and he thought it painted him in a, in a sympathetic light. So he reached out to Andrew Jarecki and agreed to make a six-part docuseries for HBO called The Jinx. And you liked that movie so much that you named our youngest daughter after it. Kirsten? Not spelled the same, but it's basically pronounced the same, right? Yeah, but I didn't see her in that movie. I saw her in Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Wasn't she in Interview with a Vampire, Oh, yes. That's the first time I saw her when she was a little girl. Creepy little vampire girl with Brad Pitt. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually the first time I heard the name Kirsten. Yeah. Anyway, he ends up making this six-part docuseries for HBO, and it's ultimately what winds up being his downfall. Throughout the interviews, he seems confused and rattled, and like I said... He claimed to be on meth the whole time. Like I said, once you go crystal, you don't go back. (laughs) Keep in mind, his lawyers, his friends, his wife, all adamantly opposed his decision to do these interviews. And for good reason. Like, he gave them all access to everything. All his personal files, money, records. Well, do you think, since he obviously tried to get caught in a grocery store, maybe he was doing this because he wanted to be caught? Well, who knows? But I, I don't think he was ready for this last piece of evidence that that sent him you down. You think he just thought he was a lot smarter than yes. everybody? Oh, yeah. He definitely thought he was smarter. So on the night of the final episode of the, that the Jinx was broadcast, he was arrested for the murder of Susan Berman. They just saved that for the final episode so that they'd have a real cool ending to the first season. Well, no. like the, He wasn't arrested so on out camera. he gets acquitted again. No. Then he comes back for season two. <laughs> Robert Durst. Yeah. Season two. Running the Jinx. Durst. Jinx. Two. <laughs> So as the documentary ends, Durst is moving in a bathroom with his microphone on and he records himself. And this is what they think he says. There it is. You're caught. You're right, of course. But you can't imagine. Arrest him. I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. I'm having difficulty with the question. What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. I don't think it was so bad up until that very last sentence. <laughs> I know. It's like he's just rambling and rambling and rambling. It's like, yeah, I killed them all. I did it. Yep. Well, I tell you, if there's one thing I didn't do, it's like, you know what I did. I killed everybody. <laughs> I killed them all. I know it. You know it now. So what set off this rambling was evidence shown to him by director Andrew Jarecki. It was a letter sent to police with the word cadaver. Remember that letter I told yeah, you about? Yeah, the cadaver letter. Yeah, so it had Susan's address and... On the inside, it said cadaver. That's all it had. And then Jarecki shows him a letter beside that letter that Durst had sent to Susan in 1999. So it was one that he had actually written and he knew it. And he holds them both up and he asks him if he can tell the difference between them. He's like, which one did you not write? And he cannot say. And it gets him all rattled because he's like, he does not know. So he said that the handwriting appears to be identical. Yes. It does look identical. I had to get in the... uh, my Cousin Vinny reference, which is one of the greatest movies of all time. It is. So he also, the word Beverly in Beverly Hills is misspelled in both instances. He puts an extra E in there. Ooh, I saw another episode of Forensic Files where people's way they write yes. their letters can get them caught. Yeah. Most people always write the same way. And it's not just that. They'll do some weird things. Like this particular guy, he would do contractions. Only on, in the negative, but not the, the negative, positive. But not the positive. Like, I will go. I won't go. Like, yeah. he won't say that. And it was very weird, but it's like something you wouldn't really notice. But then the cops do. Yeah. So here is an audio clip from the Jinx when he sees this letter for the first time. Can you tell me which one you didn't write? No. Yeah, so he pretty much has his breakdown and realizes he's called at this point. That's when he goes into the bathroom and I've, starts uh, rambling. I've got to uh, go to the bathroom. <laughs> I will be right back. So a few days after this, a first-degree murder warrant was signed by the Los Angeles judge in relation to the Berman killing. Durst was arrested by FBI agents on March 14, 2015 at the Canal Street Marriott in New Orleans, where he had registered under the fake name Everett Ward. That sounds like a Harry Potter character. So he actually, they tracked him down because he made two voicemail calls, like checking his voicemail. Yeah. They were able to like triangulate where he is. And you know how that works. What an idiot. I know. 
And he, they found him wandering aimlessly in the lobby and mumbling to himself. <laughs> yeah, I killed him. I killed him all. Why'd you ask? Okay. <laughs> he had driven to New Orleans from Houston four days earlier. In addition to a 38 caliber revolver loaded with four live rounds and one spent shell casing, police recovered five ounces of marijuana, Durst's birth certificate and passport, maps of Louisiana, Florida, and Cuba, a flesh-toned latex mask. It's kind of like, it's, it's weird. I've seen it. They're like putting women's stockings over your face or something? No, it's like a whole new face. Like you put it over you and it's- Well, enough. I guess if you're a billionaire, you spring for the good things <laughs> yeah. in life. Yeah. So he also had a fake Texas ID card that he used to check into the hotel. Please tell me it had a cool name on it. It doesn't say what its name was. Oh, I, I know it must have been Everett. It had to be oh, Everett. Everett. That's oh. what he used. I thought it was going to be Tex Longshooter or something. <laughs> so he had a new cell phone and cash totaling $42,631. He could almost afford to buy them Band-Aids. <laughs> yeah. They also discovered a UPS tracking number, which led to an additional $117,000 cash and a pair of shoes in a package sent to Durst by a friend from New York. That's ridiculous. You trust UPS to take $117,000 of cash. And not even the shoes. And, and I don't the, trust them with no, the shoes. The, and then you actually throw a pair of shoes in on this. <laughs> Maybe it's, you put the money in the shoes to make it think it was like, your shoes. Come on now. Those were probably like Jordans or something, right? That's about how much they run now. Bank statements found in one of Durst's Houston condominium revealed cash withdrawals of $315,000 in a little more than a month. So it's, they believe he was planning to flee to Cuba after the HBO docuseries aired since they have no extradition treaty with the So United do you States. think that maybe he was planning on ending that show differently than it did end? Maybe he was going to like have some surprise reveal at the end and it would sort of be like the way Prince was in that SNL skit where they had Fred Armisen playing Prince and it was like, Prince wants to know if he can escape to Cuba. <laughs> And then he's like, and then Fred Durst is just on an airplane flying away. It's Robert Durst. Yeah. No, Fred Durst is the Limp Biscuit guy. Yes. So Robert Durst. Oh, that's why you thought that. Yeah, there it is. Aha, the circle comes full square. (laughs) In a three-hour interview with police, he agrees that whoever wrote the cadaver letter is the killer, and he can't say he didn't write it. He's also fishing for a deal at this point because he's 72 years old and his health isn't great. But police don't want to give him a deal because they feel like they pretty much have him at this point. Yeah. It's been a long time. They want, you know, they want something to happen. He's going up the river. A conditional hearing was convened in February of 2017 where Nick Chaven, who was a close friend of Durst and Berman's, and Robert Durst was actually his best man in his wedding, he uh-huh. testified that Durst had personally confessed to him to having murdered Berman. He said he did it because she knew about Kathleen. He had confessed to her. So if he'd have just paid Kathleen the two hundred fifty thousand dollars, know everybody'd be alive. Then maybe everybody'd be alive. He probably would have ended up killing somebody else. What I'm wondering, and I don't know if you're going to address this or not, but if he's a billionaire, I wonder if he was the one that executed her himself or if he hired somebody um, to I do think it. he did it because they have plane records of him flying from San Francisco to L.A. Yeah. I know you said that like the, the doors open, she had her back to him, the dog didn't go crazy to whoever it was, but that seems pretty cold coming there. Somebody that's your friend has dedicated a book to you and to come in and just like... Yeah, well, he murdered his own wife. So. Well, you know what execution style is, right? In the back of the head. You make them get down on their knees. Well, they didn't say that. They just said that she was shot in the back of her head. Execution style. Well, execution style is typically you make them get on their knees and you shoot them in the back of the head. Well, either way, it's cold blooded and crazy. On March 2nd, 2020, Durst appeared in court to begin the trial, which was expected to take several months. But you know what happened in 2020? I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) COVID. So that, I told you I don't want to talk about you know, it. That that made you know all kinds of uh, yeah postponements it, and it all did. that. They tried to get a mistrial, but you know it didn't just happen. because of a delay. They were wanting a mistrial. Yes, that doesn't if seem you, like grounds because for of it. you know speedy trial and all that stuff. Oh, I guess our constitution. Yeah, and does he'd already been like in jail that, for right? five years at this point. But he would was, that mean he would just be retried? They can keep bringing it as long yeah. as you're not convicted. There's no way with all that evidence they're going to be, well, I guess, on a technicality. Well, then again, <laughs> then <laughs> yeah. again. It got postponed until May 17th of 2021. So and that's, that's almost whole- my birthday. And we talked about my birthday last episode. So we're still on this little train of everything being <laughs> coincidentally aligned. It must be the age of Aquarius. It was postponed until May 17th, 2021. And the trial went on for several months as they predicted. And on June 10th, 2021, Durst was hospitalized after being found down and not in his wheelchair. 
The jury was sent home with plans to resume on June 14th. And they suspected he was faking this medical crisis and blah, 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 you know. You lady fell out of the wheelchair. <laughs> yeah, they're like saying he was like feigning dementia and all this stuff. So His we don't know. His prosthetic legs fell off. He fell out of the wheelchair. But he if you watch this trial, he is like really in bad health at this time. Like if yeah. you watch 2015, if you watch the uh, the Jinx, I mean, he looks old then. And... It would be hard to feel sorry for this guy. Oh, right? yeah, you do. But at the same time, he's got to be in his right mind in order to be on trial. Yeah. But yeah, he looks really rough and he's in a wheelchair and he's got all kinds of, um, he's got all kinds of things going on. So as testimony continued, Dirk's brother, Douglas, appeared as the prosecution witness on June 28th, 2021. He was reluctant to appear and only did it under threat of subpoena. He was asked about his relationship with his brother. He says, quote, he'd like to murder me. I hired security today. I have fear that my brother has threatened to kill me and I fear that he may have the means to do so. Wow. So, yeah, everyone's scared. What a close, tight relationship they must have. Yeah, they didn't They didn't get along. So, was he a charismatic guy at all at no. any point in his life? No. So, did people like him for his money or why did he, how did he have friends? He sounds like a pretty bad dude. I guess maybe in a small social situation he was, but he didn't like, yeah, he was just not, he was not like outgoing and friendly. And, I'm just picturing Rain Man. I don't know yeah. why. On July 29th, 2021, Durst's defense team asked again for an emergency halt to the case based on his poor medical condition, saying that he was not able to testify on his own behalf, but that was again rejected. So they're like going to get this trial done. You going down, son. Yeah. So remember Nick Chavin, the one that testified saying that he had confessed to him? Yes. He said that, he, that Durst told him, quote, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice, saying that he had to kill Berman. Because she was going to tell on him. So either she had to die execution style or he was going to go to jail. Right. For a body that they didn't find. Right. So there's no guarantee that he would have even got a murder charge on it, right? Yeah, I don't know if they would have had enough evidence. You got to have a body. You don't. Don't you? No, they can try you without a body. It's not typical, but they can. It's like called in absentia or something. Can you get the death penalty if they can't find a body? Depends on the state. So... Even if they can't find proof a person's actually even dead, you could still get the death penalty. In her some family situations. actually had her declared legally dead, um, you know, not too long ago because eventually you just assume. Maybe they were just running a long con. <laughs> I don't think so. A really long con. So Durst appeared on the stand for 14 days. So, you know, he testified on his own behalf. And under questioning by L.A. County Deputy DA, Let me John guess, Lewin. He got nervous and had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> no. He gave seemingly endless examples of Durst's propensity to lie. Lewin cornered him to the point where he admitted lying while under oath in the Morris Black trial in Texas and that he had lied five times while on the stand in this trial. So, yeah, he's pretty much like just I'm telling you, (laughs) let him go to the bathroom and give him a wireless mic. So the defense only called two witnesses, Durst and one other person. On September 14th, 2021, the defense rested. And here's a clip of the verdict. Breaking news tonight in the murder trial of multimillionaire real estate heir Robert Durst. The verdict comes in just came in moments ago. Emily Ikeda is outside the courthouse in Los Angeles County. Emily, how did the jury find him? Lester, good evening. After four days of deliberation, a jury here in Los Angeles found 78-year-old Robert Durst guilty of first-degree murder. The jury finding he was responsible for the 2000 killing of his confidant, Susan Berman, in an attempt to cover up the disappearance of his wife decades ago. Prosecutors said Berman had planned to speak with police about a false alibi she provided for Durst. The nearly two-month televised trial was extended over a year and a half because of the pandemic. The high-profile crime was featured in the HBO docuseries The Jinx, putting a new spotlight on the old case. The frail cancer survivor, who at times struggled to speak in court and took the stand for multiple days, may spend the rest of his life in prison. And indeed, he did spend the rest of his life in prison. On October 14th, 2021, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for Berman's murder. Then he contracted COVID-19 in 2021. Sounds like if anyone deserves it, he did. I know. And it exacerbated all his other medical conditions. He died of cardiac arrest at the San Joaquin General Hospital in Stockton, California on January 10th, 2022 at the age of 78. He had been undergoing testing at the time of his death. 
Until that time, he had been in the custody of the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. So he was in jail when he died of COVID-19. Well, did he though? Did he lie about that too? Oh, you speculated earlier that he could have been a serial killer? I did. Days after the Berman murder, police were reportedly examining connections between Durst and the disappearances of 18-year-old Lynn Schultz from Middlebury, Vermont, and 16-year-old Karen Mitchell from Eureka, California. They were also considering possible connections with Durst and the disappearance of 18-year-old Kristen Mataferi, who was last seen in San Francisco in 1997. And what kind of connection do they think that he has with Well, us? there's different ones, like, you know, because from 1982 to 19, no, from 1982 to 2000, supposedly, you know, he only killed his wife and then Sandra, Ber- I mean, Susan Berman. There's that word we use all the time, supposedly. Yeah, so, but people speculate that he was a serial killer and they have, like, I know with the one girl, I think it's uh, Kristen, that Durst was uh, a regular in her aunt's shop and that she was last seen getting into a car with a man and the police sketch of it looks just like Robert Durst. That seems more than coincidental. And see, but these bodies, though, they never turn up and they think it's because he dismembers them. Already seen that he would do it. Yeah, and like... It takes practice, according to like people. They're like, you can't just cut up a body. Like you got to know to go into the joints. You gotta get and- yourself a French cookbook to cook rabbits, <laughs> and you know. Yeah, so you got to like know what you're doing, and they think that he was practicing all this time because in the early 1980s, Durst owned a series of seven Alaskan Malamutes. All oh of no! Which- don't go Stephen King yes, on me here. You're going yes, to, aren't you? Yes, they were all named Igor, and they died under mysterious circumstances, according to his brother Douglas. Dismemberment, I imagine. Yes. In December 2014, prior to airing The Jinx, Douglas told the New York Times, in retrospect, I now believe he was practicing killing and disposing of his wife with those dogs. Durst was once recorded saying that he wanted to Igor Douglas. And I bet he even did air quotes around it when he said, it. <laughs> you know, I want to <laughs> Igor Douglas. Durst, however, denies this, and he says that he owned seven dogs named Igor, but that it was just because they all died normally. Like one died, it got run over, and the other one died in surgery after Igor eating an fourth. apple core. So, after yeah. eating an apple core. <laughs> yeah. Well, you so, know, there's actually cyanide in apples, right? Well. You could actually kill yourself if you ate too many apple cores, because they got really? cyanide. Well, I don't eat apple cores, Apple so I think seeds I'm good. have cyanide in them. I think I'm good. So, yeah, they think that he could have possibly been a serial killer moving across the United States, killing different women. I should be Elliot Ness. They should put me in right now and be like, Brett, here's your case files. And I'll be like, cool, I'm taking lunch. And then I just leave and never come back. (laughs) So I don't know if they're like still going to be looking into these cases since he's dead. I mean, what can they really do? What years were these? You said Um, 97? Yeah, one of them was 97. So it's relatively recently then. Well, it was in they... between Kathleen and uh, Susan. Oh, so. so it spanned a decent amount of time yeah. possibly then. But wouldn't they still want to get closure even if they suspected and knew it was him? Yeah, because they don't even know for sure that like these girls closure. are dead because they never found their bodies. Yeah, so. well, you got to figure they're probably dead if it's been that long and yeah. nobody ever heard from them. Yeah, so like he probably, but you just don't know. But he definitely killed at least three people, which makes him a serial killer. Anyway. Yeah, and he's dismembered people and... It you takes know, a special kind of crazy, I think, to be able to do that. I like, mean, when I see these shows on Forensic Files and these people commit murders and they don't do it out of a crime of passion, like they, they plan it like, I, I got to get rid of my wife or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I saw the one where the guy just shot his wife, but then he shot himself in such a way that he thought he wouldn't die, but it made it look like And he was like researching, shooting without hitting awful. vital organs. Yeah, that's awful and horrible. And the dude's messed up and should serve life or get death or whatever. But it still seems like even that makes a little sense compared to dismembering somebody, you know? Well, I think and, the the logic behind it is to get rid of the body so that no one ever finds the body, which seemed to work with Kathleen. Yeah, but just She's still not been found, it's, and it was 1982. I understand the reason for it. I'm just saying, like, how the capacity could you to do it? Be, even though the body's dead, yeah. how could you take a saw and cut off people's arms and legs and head? How could you well, do that? Well, I think he used a lot of drugs. He was quite fond of marijuana crystal and crystal meth and all that. So I think he had to probably get high. Well, there's probably been worse scenes on Breaking Bad. <laughs> so maybe meth does make you do stuff like that. I don't know. Who knows? So that is the crazy case of Robert Durst. So it turns out Berman. he never opened the casino. He did not. So I guess I'm not quite as good a private eye as I thought I was. But, you know, one for one, 
He should have though. He should have just taken that money, going to Vegas, and had a good yeah. life, and Do you not know how long people? he could play the penny slots oh with gosh. a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> See, I don't Man. think he actually got the billion because like he had a dispute with his family early on. He got like. Well, forget that. Million. Forget that nonsense. If you could take like you know two thousand dollars and go there and play <laughs> the penny slots, then he could play that. If he goes at R eight by like you know he'd have at least an hour and a half at for least two thousand dollars on the penny slots. <laughs> at least. And, you know, it, good times. It's a lot better than murder. Yeah, he should have chosen a different path. He should have chosen Vegas. He should have, and we're going to go back. I hope. So. I don't know how we could have possibly afforded it <laughs> at this point, but we would like to Send go. Send us back. money on we Patreon. We would love to go to CrimeCon. <laughs> it's going to be held in Vegas this year, and. I'd like yeah, to we'll meet, go do some research. I would like to meet some other podcasters. So if any of our audience actually is going to be at CrimeCon, why don't you give us a phone call and let us know? Because if you are, we'd we'll like share to, a room. We'd like to. <laughs> we'd like to. We're not going to pay for it. I mean, but you know what? I do give good back massages, and oh, I'll not. charge low rates. He does not. Oh, I don't, huh? <laughs> okay. Yeah, but if you're going to be at CrimeCon, give us a call at nine one two four zero six two eight nine nine. That's nine one two four zero six two eight nine nine. And if we make it there, we'll try to track you down and find you. I'm thinking about just popping up one of our own like signs. Like, yeah, we're just going to have a banner presenters. made and like take our card table. Like, and wait just a pop second. It up. Where's your badge? <laughs> I'll be, I, I left it in, in the room, baby. I'll be right back. <laughs> Mr. Papa Giorgio. That's right. I, I put in a quarter. I want a car. I put in a quarter. I want a car. I put in a quarter. I want a car. Did not happen to me. No, it didn't. Although I do know where to go do that. If you go to the Four Queens on downtown Las Vegas, they got a 2013 Shelby Mustang yeah, Shelby. for a dollar eighty seven in a slot machine and it can be yours. Yeah, and it's still there, so I don't think it. Gets I'm going to win that when we go back. <laughs> I, I didn't play any easy. of those machines, but I'm going to go win that daggum car. <laughs> We're going to drive it home just like the Griswolds. I ain't driving from Vegas. You can drive it. I'll fly. So that brings us to the portion of the episode where we talk about our furry friends, Coffee and Layla talk. <laughs> no, Layla it's and Layla and Coffee talk. talk. Layla. Layla and Coffee talk. Okay, that's sure. better. So this week, Coffee's we were been in a Vegas rascal. and our son came here and stayed at the house with the dogs and our Layla loves him and she's not anxious, but Coffee had a little bit more of an issue, right? Yeah, she has severe separation anxiety from me and probably you too, who knows, but definitely from me. Yes. And so every time he would leave the house, she would find something to tear up. And she tore up. I have this vintage, I have a lot of vintage Santa it stuff. It is haunted. And now I have not put up my Christmas stuff yet. I'm terrible. It's the end of January. I've got to get on that. But Christmas tree is going to burn a house down. Well, at least we unplugged it. It's almost February. And I we know. still have a Christmas tree standing there that we put up the day after Thanksgiving. I know. So I have this vintage Santa and it's super creepy. It's like stuffed and it sits on the floor in the entryway. It's actually a little more creepy now. Yeah, and so all the kids hate it. They're all scared of it. They all say it's like demonic or something. Maybe I'll post Coffee a picture of it. Actually did it to protect us. So one day while Ethan was gone, she tore open the hat and got the stuffing and whatever is inside it all over the living room. The evil spirits oh, just that's say what it was. Like oh, they're like little like orbs. It is. Yeah, so it was a disaster and a mess. And then where did we go yesterday? I think we went to clean stuff, didn't we? Oh, yeah. We were out in Savannah and then we came back. Our son, Ethan, the oldest one, all of our kids were athletes. And Ethan was an all-star baseball player yeah, from age seven years. until he was, you know, in high school. Won a state championship. He has this leather glove that he used from the time he was seven. And we've had it all this time. And he's going to be 24 soon. So we've had it a long time. And I don't know where she got it from. I can't figure it out. It must have been in your office. Uh, it may be. It might have been in this closet. It might have been in the closet. She always goes in the closet looking for stuff. So anyway, she got it and proceeded to dissect it all over our bed. Yeah, she likes to take up residence on our bed when she's dismantling things. Yeah, so we come home and there's leather pieces all over the bed. Yeah, Rawlings here, Rawlings there, <laughs> Rawlings everywhere. But at least Layla's good. She doesn't do anything wrong. <laughs> yeah, but she didn't mean. She looked at us like she thought she's doing something good. And I we know. told her she's a bad dog, and she was so sad. She was very sad. We couldn't stick with it long. We had to. No, we had to her give her pets because then she then... looked very, very sad. So yeah, so she's sorry about that. I'm sure she's learned her lesson. Though. Yeah, she wouldn't do it again. She will never do it again until and I'm sure she does next week when we have our next episode. <laughs> So you can find us online at www.scarysavannahandbeyond.com or www.scarysavannah.net. You can find us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, LinkedIn, 
at the username at Scary Savannah. Please go look at our YouTube page. You can go to it if you go to our actual website. There's a link right on the front page to go to YouTube. And we do have videos up there. And we will be adding more now that we're back from Vegas and we got some time to work on it. So please go look at that and like and subscribe. And if you would please go and leave reviews and five yes, star ratings, ratings and reviews and are reviews. important for moving us up in the searches. Yeah, it would be very helpful if, if you could take, I mean, even if you can't go write a review, if you could just go click and leave us a five star, if you feel like we deserve it. If you don't, please don't go leave us a review. <laughs> please don't. Just don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. But please do that if you feel led to do so, if you'd be so great, greatly appreciated by both of us. And we can keep bringing you all this great content. I think next week we're going to be talking about more of a ghost story, right? Possibly. Yeah, I think we are. And one last thing, if you would like to support the podcast, if you could go become a patron on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash scary Savannah. And there are multiple tiers that you could choose to support us at. Some of those tiers give some pretty cool merchandise. But if you could do that, that would really help go towards us funding this rather expensive process of <laughs> doing a podcast. Doesn't it doesn't just cost time. It does cost a lot of money. But, you know, if you can't, that's fine. We love all of our listeners. But if you feel like feel like that's something you could do, we would appreciate it. So that leaves just the one last thing, I think. Join us next time in Savannah where the ghosts and the good times live on. <laughs> <laughs>